The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You know, I was just saying to some... Have you ever been to Denmark? I've been to, yes, to the Vatican. Oh, the Vatican? The Vatican's in Rome. Well, they, they, they were doing so well in Rome that they opened one in Denmark. Uh, oh. Uh, you know, I was just saying to someone the other day that the Scandinavians seem to have such an instinctive appeal for the human condition. It's very wise, you know? That's, it's, I think, pithy. Oh, well, it, it was, uh, pithy. It had great pith. Yes, pith. morning, London. This is Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon, we hope, because we've got technicians all over this studio today doing upgrades and all kinds of work for us today. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes, everything will be we do have with us on the line, do we? Paul, are you there? Good morning, gentlemen. Hello, Paul. Good morning, Paul. <laughs> Today's subject, uh, you're with us today because today we're going to be looking at an interesting thing. We're going to be looking at how one can find freedom, basically, in an unfree world, and, and largely from a European perspective. So, uh, Paul, this was kind of your idea when, when you proposed it a couple weeks ago, and you were talking about the kinds of things that Europeans find themselves doing to sort of get more freedom out of their life in a, in a government that is very state-controlled and, uh, you know, top-heavy with taxes and restrictions. Is that correct? Well, that's right, but I should point out it's by no means all Europeans or even a majority, but those who've made a, a conscious decision in this regard have had to take uh, certain steps, which have had quite a good uh, amount of success. And so what are your secrets? What, what kind of things do you do? Well, the first thing you have to keep in mind is that it's, uh, it's really a, it's a state of mind, if nothing, nothing more. It's uh, an ability to know what you can control and what you can't control, and keeping in mind that uh, there's no point trying to convert or change other people, but just maximizing what freedoms you do have and uh, letting other people do their own thing. You have to understand that, uh, that uh, of course, to us, freedom seems like the obviously right thing to do, but not everyone's going to see it that way, and everyone else has his own agenda and his own interests, and they're going to be contrary to one's own. And how, do, how does that affect you then? Like, you know, you, you gave us a... I was looking at your pricey earlier, some of the ideas you had in terms mm-hmm. of, of um, what you personally do in terms of getting around the state. You're an unusual person in Sweden anyway, aren't you? In the sense of your lifestyle compared to most Swedes. Well, that, that's right. And that's uh, a lot of people ask me, how can someone like myself, who's been involved in the Freedom Party for so long and has a certain disposition, how can I stand living in a socialist <laughs> paradise like I do? But uh, it really is uh, about thinking outside the box. Um, see, Sweden and most European countries, they're very conformist. And so if you do things a little bit differently, and we can get into a, a few of these things that mm-hmm. are a bit different, then, uh, then the, the state and the powers that be and just even your neighbors don't really know what to do with you. And uh, if you do it right, they'll leave you alone, and you can uh, t- 
take advantage of whatever freedoms you do have. Now, do, Paul, do you think that uh, Europeans would define the word freedom the way we define it here in North America? Um, no, and it, it's not a matter of uh, ignorance or lack of intelligence, but we're just so ingrained with a, a top-down sort of societal uh, disposition, if you know what I'm saying. Everything starts with your community, your country, and then the individual is somewhere lower down. The individual is a tool to serve the state, whereas in English-speaking countries, generally, traditionally, the state is a tool in the interest of the individual. No, I didn't mean to suggest, of course, there was a level of ignorance there. What I was trying to get at was mm -hmm. that sometimes we come across people, uh, at least here, uh, of European descent who, when we describe freedom to them, um, they're thinking of, well, what are you talking about? We are free. We run our own country. In other words, there are no foreign invaders. That's the level of the thought they have when they think of the word freedom. They don't think of freedom as an individual right or a sense of uh, individual versus the collective. They think of foreign oppression. Is it, is it that basic over there, too? Well, it is. You got it quite right. And actually, it's interesting to say, 10 years ago, um, then the Icelandic president, Vigdis Finnbogadóttir, she rather made waves when she stated there's a big difference between freedom and independence that an independent country is not necessarily free, and not a free country necessarily is independent. And for us in Europe, that was, that was groundbreaking. Actually, yes, she's, she seems to have hit the nail on the head with that one. That's exactly uh, the mm -hmm. distinction to be made. Now, Paul, you, yes. you basically argue that the system under we, which we live is inimical to freedom. Why do you say that, just basically as an overall principle? It's because... in it's because of this sort of second-rate idea we have of democracy, about a majority rule, and that so many people without a real stake in the matter, without a real stake in how our system is run, they have a vote, but they don't have to take any responsibility. They, they literally won't put their money where their mouth is, but they may put their mouths where other people's money is, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. That they, they want to get the benefit. See, it's easy for someone who, for instance, doesn't have an income, to vote for a higher income tax, especially if he can think he's going to drive some benefit. And that's just one example. We have people at each other's throats, and so trying to convince other people that freedom is their way. And freedom is difficult. Freedom requires a lot of responsibility on one's part, and if it's just easier to take from someone else, then over time there'll be a positive impetus in that direction. It certainly sounds like it runs into a dead-end situation. Now, y you argued that um, really, freedom is never a political issue. You, you guys in Sweden, you're going into an election pretty soon, aren't you? Six more weeks. Six actually. more weeks? That's right. And uh, nobody talks about freedom really as being an issue. I can understand that because it's the same here, really, isn't it, Robert? More or less, yeah. <laughs> uh, as we played on the show last week with all, or, or a couple weeks ago with all those, uh, you know, the, the all candidates debates. How many times did freedom come up in that discussion of how much they could spend our money? That's know? right. The only issue is how efficiently can they run the socialist state, not whether or not we should have one or not. Well, that's exactly the same thing here. Ever since I've been in Europe, anyway, the, oh, there's always been three issues. It was been schooling, uh, elderly care, and health insurance. And all the parties, I mean, that's all they talk about. Every party has a better way to do it, or a cheaper way to do it, or a more humane way to do it. But that's, that's all they talk about, and that's the whole elections are run on that. Now, right now, um, we have the, the bourgeois bloc in party in, uh, in Sweden, the nominal, nominally conservative. And uh, 
the opposition socialists only talk about how the, there's a disparity, the widening gap between rich and poor, and that, that's the only issue. They can't really, really point out to any real source of popular discontent. And so we're really just arguing about what to do with other people's money. Now, we can, your, your conservative parties over there, are they like our conservative parties over here? In other words, extremely left-wing socialists? Um, yes. <laughs> Okay, I so. <laughs> uh, yes, that is, and in fact, the, this conservative party that that won the last election, um, it thought they did so exactly because they did take a big turn to the left. Other parties before then were more broadly conservative and um, didn't didn't get the same kind of support that they did this time round. But uh, I I, w- I will point out that uh, you know not to make it sound hopeless. But there, there are many ways in the past 20 years that most European countries, and Sweden in particular, are much freer than they have been in, in Sweden in the past 20 years. And some of this has just happened this year. We've abolished the drugstore monopoly. That will become as a bit of a shock to some of your local mm-hmm. listeners that you, know, you have Shoppers, Drug Mart, and Big, Big V and all that. that. That was until this year. That was a state-run monopoly in Sweden. And so, and so if you had a headache on a Saturday afternoon, you couldn't... Uh, I mean, the store was closed. You couldn't get a headache pill, and you couldn't get uh, even regular aspirin at a grocery store or the corner variety store. But that's been abolished. Um, the monopoly the state had on passenger train service has been abolished. Patients now can go to any health clinic of his own choice and have his portion of his health tax paid directly to it. The monopoly on education at lower levels has been abolished. Um, there is now private importation of alcohol is allowed. Uh, military conscription in peacetime has been abolished. Uh, they've lifted the prohibition on currency speculation, and another shocker is uh, they now allow uh, uh, private television and radio broadcasting, which is something you know we've grown up with in Canada. That's very new here. All broadcast was state-run until the past 20 years. But what's important is none of these things were ever an election issue. So I'm saying you're never going to get your freedom by voting and uh, what freedoms we have had. And I'm, I'm a bit of a loss to explain why these freedoms have come about. but it has not come through by election. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I gave that a lot of thought because uh, I noticed you mentioned that uh, you made that observation when you told us these things earlier. And Mm -hmm. I have to tell, I I was doing some of my own research. We'll get to that a little bit later. I was reading, catching up on my economist reading this past week, and they were giving an interesting insight into what is going on on, in the European uh, whole situation going on over there. And what, what, what I fear is that it's going to be coming here if it isn't here already. But, you know, this is, the, this is, I think, a major misunderstanding that people have with politics everywhere. And it happens here, too. I, I think, Robert, this addressed the issue of conservatives versus liberals. You know, are they any different? Everyone will run to the conservatives because they give them one bone. You know, this one policy will make us, quote, more free, right? So you can talk about abolishing drugstore monopolies and, and state passenger service as if these were moves towards freedom. But I would suggest to you that they are not. I would suggest that these are moves away from trying to be responsible for the services that they'd already monopolized and they can't handle it anymore. It's, it's, it's an early advance warning of a collapse of, of the welfare state. That's my interpretation of these so-called freedoms. I don't think we're really looking at, at a move towards freedom in any conscious sense. I think if you were a government uh, official and I'm looking at this, you, you, know, you already know education isn't working out at the lower levels. Why not give people some choice? Maybe you can get out of that. And um, I see that happening as a matter of last recourse. We, here, in, here in Ontario, for example, the city of Windsor didn't even 
um, play with the idea of contracting out until the city was practically bankrupt, and then they did it overnight. Amazing how they came to those decisions. So that's the kind of freedom you end up getting when, when we see a policy that should be in place, that should have been there forever, it's only there as an emergency recourse to some failed government policy, don't you think, Robert? I think so, Bobby. Yeah. yeah. What, what, do you, what do you think of that interpretation, Paul? Is that, does that fit with what you see? Well, it does. I, actually, I hadn't thought of it until you just said so, but it, it does sort of fit in with some other observations. And it's a bit, it's a bit sad in a way that means it really does mean we have to hit rock bottom before we start digging ourselves up again. Well, I wouldn't, now, hey, don't, don't count on us, on us digging ourselves up again. We might just dig ourselves lower, because <laughs> that happens too. Oh, yeah, history is replete with a lot of societies out there who actually go down to the absolute bottom of the pit of socialism, where people are actually dying in the streets before anything happens. Yeah, well, that, that's part of uh, why I'm calling today as well. Uh, you know, we might not... Individually, individually be able to help all of society to make sure that you're sort of out of that system, that even if everyone else hits rock bottom, that uh, maybe you'll climb out of it yourself. Unfortunately, yeah. there's fewer and fewer places in the world to go to to escape such a, a society. No, and I know, and I've, I've, I've now moved to three different countries, and it really made no difference at all. I mean, I'm, I suppose if you don't move to a really dreadful sort of place, but uh, yeah, just going to another country is not going to... They're all the same. They really are. Now, you, you made an interesting comment about that, but I want to get that back to that a little bit later. Are we all set up? Are our clips and everything working now? Okay, I guess we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back on the other side of this break, we will continue our conversation with Paul Lambert, who speaks to us from Sweden. And you're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we hope we'll be with you from now till noon. And when we return, we'll talk about European unfreedom or the illusion of capitalism in Europe. We'll be back right after this. This is the Champs-Élysées, man. It's the biggest shopping street in the world. The Arc de Triomphe's up there. This is Paris. Look at those Eiffel Towers. We're talking Eiffel here. Yeah, what, what are you Excuse doing? Excuse me, madam. I'd like to talk to you one minute. I want you to meet my friend. His name is Jonathan. Jonathan, this is madame. Voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? What? Voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir? Are you asked? She likes you. What you do that for? I just asked her out for dinner. No, no, no. You asked her if she would like to go to bed with you tonight. I did? I thought you took French. I did take French. I mean, I can say this is my pencil. My pencil is big, you know, that kind of stuff. Under the right circumstances, that could be useful. Yeah? Yeah. We got to find those circumstances. Parlez-vous English? Un peu. Uh, Donnez-moi, s'il vous plaît, uh, uh, Pernod. Je comprends pas. Donnez-moi, s'il vous plaît. I understand. Donnez-moi, s'il vous plaît. I don't know what is Pernod. Pernod, here. Ah, un Pernod. Pernod. Monsieur wishes un Pernod. Yes, Monsieur does wish. You take traveler's checks? Bernot. Merci. Avec de l'eau? Victor who? With water? Please. Bernard. 
Victor Lue. Mon crayon est large. Pardon? Mon crayon est large et mon crayon est jaune. Your pencil is big and yellow? Oui. Oh, nice for you. What a jerk. <laughs> you haven't seen that movie, eh, I've Robert? never seen that. It's Gotcha, right? Yeah, it's out of the movie Gotcha, uh, which was a film back in the 1980s. It's a, it's a wonderful little uh, comedy adventure kind of thing. Two young boys, you know, get out of college, have an adventure in Europe, which includes... You know, all the spies and chasing around. A lot of fun. But is, is, it, is the whole movie just picking on the French or what? No, 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 no. <laughs> Not about that at all. It's more picking on the Germans, in fact, because at the time it was, uh, it was filmed, they had to go through the demilitarized zone between East and West Berlin, oh, and that, that was a very interesting and heavy scene that was going on in there. And it's interesting because that seems to be one of the problems going on in Europe these days is a struggle between Germany and France for control of the European Union. I understand that picking on the French is sort of a popular pastime in Europe. Is that right, Paul? Oh, it is. A, it, I don't know how serious it really is, but every time <laughs> something goes a little bit wrong, we, we pick on the French. Well, maybe, there might be a good reason for that, which we'll get into. <laughs> yeah, I, I wondered what you might think of this, Paul. And by the way, uh, for those just tuning in, we're, we're talking to Paul Lambert, who's live with us. He's our Euro correspondent from Sweden. And we're just talking about the, the state of freedom, basically, in Europe and people and how people cope with it. I'm looking at The Economist here from July 10th of this year, headline, Staring into the Abyss. As the Eurozone crisis spooks governments, opinions are diverging dramatically about what the union is for. And they write briefly, facing a Bermuda Triangle of debt, demographic decline, and lower growth, the European Union faces an acute crisis in its economic core, the 16 countries that use the single currency. The problem is that the European social model has become, too often, a synonym for the ver a very expensive way of doing things. It has also become an end in itself, with some e EU um, leaders calling for Europe to grow purely in order to maintain its social welfare systems. That's a pretty depressing call to arms. Become more dynamic so Europe can still afford old age pensions and unemployment benefits. Sounds like something you just told us there, Paul. Oh, it's worse than that. What we had in Sweden, it got downright primitive. People are being told to have more children to take care of us in our old age. I mean, that, that's oh like right out of you know, some African countries where they have to have eight or ten children in the hopes that some will live long enough to take care of you in your old age. You know, and of course, when I hear that kind of thing coming from a government, it kind of lets you know where their heads that are That almost reminds me of breeding children for body parts. Yeah. It, it almost is that. Yeah. But well, yeah. But, either that, but it tells you just how, how stubborn the mindset is. They, they don't question that perhaps they should not try to save the social system, but to come up with a new one. And it, that, that's what gets me, the stubbornness of Let the people. Let it collapse. Yeah. Well, you can understand that to some degree. The fear that is that is in people's minds, even like, oh, what we don't, we're, we're going to try something other than socialized medicine, for example, and people think that that means no health care, when of course it really means the opposite. But uh, the article here continues. It says, Europe is in desperate need of good ideas and leadership. The single currency was always supposed to drive structural reforms, as once profligate countries were forced by the rules and their peers to live within their means. Instead, France and Germany led a rebellion against the disciplines of the Stability and Growth Pact on the first occasion it looked about to catch them, and that signaled a free-for-all. Lessons do seem to have been learned. 
German officials say there's now bitter regret in Berlin that their country helped wreck the original stability and growth pact, but wrecked it was. And then, this is funny, under the headline, Doing the Right Thing, we read, as Jean-Claude Juncker, is that how you pronounce it, Prime Minister of Luxembourg? Yes. Said, said mem- memorably in 2007, quote, we all know what to do, but we don't know how to get reelected once we've done it. <laughs> that was that was the most honest thing out of I, the mouth of a European politician. Uh, That's well, perfect. It, it is just a, it is funny, you know. And and so now and then they conclude now with markets shunning some euro laggards, doing the right thing is a matter of survival, isn't it always? Yeah. You know, and that's the amazing thing. And that, I think, speaks to all those, quote, freedoms you were talking about there, Paul. The, 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 the seeming increase in freedom you're getting, I think that's more as a cause of this situation. Oh, that, that could well be, because I, I know that uh, these were not these freedoms, uh, quote, unquote, were not done so enthusiastically, but rather with heels dragging and kicking. It was actually the Social Democratic Party who began most of these reforms to start with. So we know it wasn't a matter of politics in that case. So what do you mean? How is it not a matter of politics? What do you mean? Oh, I mean not a matter of their politics. You see, if a conservative party says, oh, we want to privatize this or get rid of a monopoly, then people think, well, that's just politics. They've always stood for that. But then if a socialistic party says the same thing, then people think, well, it must really be serious, you know, if they're going to say that. Mm-hmm. There's more of a sense of desperation in it. It's not just a question of a different political opinion. There's really no choice anymore. Now, now, we're, you're in Sweden. Are you, are you one of the 16 countries on the euro? No, we still have our own currency. We actually voted against joining the, the euro, but we are in the EU. Now, how, how does Sweden feel about all this, or is there an official situation about the whole EU situation and the euro dollar and all that? Well, compared to most uh, European countries, we've actually fared much better during the the past few years in in this crisis. And so I think a lot of people are taking a breath of fresh air that we didn't actually join the euro. Um, Now, the the Swedish crown as well has fallen compared to other world currencies too, but not uh, nearly as bad. It hasn't been caught up in the same sort of Ponzi scheme that the the euro itself might represent. Is it still is it still like an issue in Sweden? Are they still talking about it? Is there are, are there plans for the future to do so, or are they not even considering it? Well, right now we don't hear anything about it. Nothing. When the, you know, well, when, when, the, when we first voted on whether or not to join the euro, it was said that it was said we're not sure about it, and we could always join later. So they sort of erred on the side of caution, and so far this seems to have bared out. Now, maybe this is a bit of an unfair question, but in your mind at least, would you say that Sweden is far more or far less socialist or maybe the same as most of the European Union and the countries in it? Um, in a purely economic sense, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, far, it's about the same, but um, in other terms of, of personal freedom, it is much freer in Sweden here. Um, you don't need the same kind of... Uh, same kind of licenses, and there's not the same restrictions. And that. I mean, there, there, there still are. It's, it's not a, a free, free country, but it, it well, is better than, say, Germany or, or France, especially. France is a very unfree country by Western standards. You know, after I don't know, after your television experience you told us about a few <laughs> weeks ago, I don't know that I can believe you when you say that. Oh, but it's, but it's the same in the other countries, yeah. too. <laughs> well, it's interesting, because I was also reading about Germany having a, a situation with uh, starting to introduce uh, private television into the country, and it's not going 
over very well, especially pay TV. Lowest uh, viewership of all the richer nations, and apparently the only way they can attract Germans to this stuff is by improving the technology with which it is being delivered, not the content. So I don't know what that whole situation is about. Now, interestingly, I was looking in also at the news that uh, uh, why the neighbors fall out, uh, again from The Economist, why, why Nicolas Sarkozy and Angela Merkel disagree about the future of Europe. And it writes that, uh, you know, despite finding each other mutually unbearable, as one European ex-foreign minister puts it, the two have found a way to get along. They smile for the cameras together, issue joint statements, and hold joint cabinet meetings. They agree on taxing banks, more financial regulation, and a, quote, economic government, end quote, for Europe. However... The French want to concoct a Eurozone bloc with a direct line to the European Central Bank and fiscal harmonization. Fiscal harmonization, not HST or anything. <laughs> the Germans reject this. They insist on a wider grouping backed by strict budgetary discipline and harsh sanctions for bad behavior. And then they write Germany and France are no longer shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder equals. This is particularly hard for France. Put simply, its Europe policy has long consisted of coming up with the ideas and getting the eager-to-please Germans to pay for them. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and so more, more Europe, in other words, has meant more France. Now, that, that speaks to your comment when you say people kind of pick on the French for when things go wrong in Europe. Maybe it's because they see them as, as the intellectual leaders. Would you, could that be a reason? Like it could be. I mean, there are many, there are many reasons for that. I mean, there is a real chauvinism in France, so I mean, the French are to blame a bit for that. And I mean, it goes back many years when the atomic weapons testing in the Pacific, you know, we all hated France for that. And it's, it, I, I don't know where it comes from. Like I said, it's not always serious at all. Interesting, because, uh, uh, you know, in the previous clips we just played from Gotcha, I, I kind of named the first half of that French lesson and the second half of that France lesson, <laughs> because it's, <laughs> it, it's about that, that very attitude. And um, The Economist basically concludes that the Eurozone crisis has exposed the cold reality that Germany is the power in Europe that counts the most. Paris can talk as much as it likes, but until Ms. Merkel agrees, nothing happens. Well, look, look at it this way. Money, money talks, and I don't know about the figures for this year, but, but last year, Britain and Germany were the only net contributors to the whole enterprise of the EU, and all other countries were net recipients. Mm -hmm. And so your money talks, so we really, really know who's in charge then. Do you hold out much hope, Paul, for Europe in general in the future? Any predictions? Well, given the, the current dynamic, uh, I, I, I do uh, I have some hope, but not that, but it's going to be a rough road. And um, there, are, there are really no leaders, no one coming up with new ideas. So through the traditional channels. I really don't see where things are going to go from here. Now, on the other hand, there are certain individuals who are doing absolutely amazing things, and that, that sort of gives me hope, gives me a reason to wake up in the morning sometimes. But, uh, you know, if you just stop listening to the, the news and reading the papers, you, you 
So it sort of makes you feel a lot better. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Paul, we we had you originally just scheduled in for the first half hour. Would you be able to stay for us with a, for another oh, ten, oh, ten, sure. ten minutes yeah, or so, just for the next quarter? Because I was going to get into something about uh, is European statism coming to North America and what's happening in Europe and Europe's dark secret. And I wondered uh, what your reflections might be on that when I get into that. But before we do, we're just going to a break before uh, the bottom of the hour break. And what you're going to hear for first is from a 2006 um, broadcast of At Issue, uh, which was titled Governed to Death, and on it is host John Robson, uh, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever was on it, Tasha Kearden, who was at that time Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and Finn Poshlin of the C.D. Howe Institute. And uh, I think they touch on a number of the issues that uh, certainly deal with the theme that we're talking about today, and we will be back after this break hardware store or is this a case where thank goodness at least they got that stuff off the shelf well i think that i mean we we certainly in terms of health or safety regulations it's an interesting point because you think of the, the government is now i mean you have bike helmet laws you have you cannot smoke in bars uh for example um now that they took junk food out of schools because it's bad for kids to eat junk food in ontario all these things designed to keep you safe make you healthy and tell you how to live your life and I think we've become kind of used to it as a society. It's, it's a little disturbing how people just accept these things without fundamentally questioning and saying, wait a minute, you know, my freedom is constantly being eroded in little ways because Big Brother wants to keep me safe. I think we need more of a debate on those sorts of issues. Yeah, I was just going to, you know, I had this discussion with someone today and I, I, we saw it as, you know, government is so busy trying to make sure that we don't crash land. They're handing out all these parachutes. When in fact, all they really need to do is let us spread our wings a bit and we'll fly. Uh, you know, you, you put a parachute on a bird, it'll crash to the ground. The bigger the parachute, the bigger the, you know, the bigger the crash. So really, I think what we've got to do is not tell people, don't worry, don't take responsibility, it'll all get taken care of for you. Because when we do that, through government, through law, we effectively turn people from flyers into fallers. Which, and this certainly strikes me as a plausible contention. It's somewhat more harder to sell. But how would one go about demonstrating this again i'm turning back to the associate director of research with this question if you thought that's an interesting hypothesis but people aren't going to buy it unless we can in some way substantiate the theory that looking after people makes them soft and helpless is there any way you could design a research project that would do this there are some specifics and you and you pick them up in uh, in health sciences uh, for instance uh, food food product regulation tends to raise the cost of, uh, of fruits and vegetables in people's diets and raising the cost of course uh, has the result of uh, diminishing the, uh, the the food budget share that fresh fruits and vegetables uh, take up now that of course uh, has a bad side of its own because we presume there are a lot of protective uh, properties in other words uh, uh, cancer protections that are associated with having particular fruits and vegetables in your diet so raising the cost on the food safety side has a downside on, on, on the population health level so there are lots, lots of these trade-offs out there but you have to go and look they're hard to find uh, it's not surprising that we do find them, but uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long and, and difficult learning process. So, so societies keep uh, struggling away at it, and I, I don't think anyone's uh, figured out one metric that's, uh, that's going to guide you through these things. I have one suggestion. Well, I mean, in terms of a very big macro experiment, if you will, of just um, government control, you can look at former socialist countries of the, or communist countries of the Eastern Bloc where 
you had incredible amounts of government regulation in every area from where you know where you shopped to where you lived uh, you have to get on the list for an apartment uh, your job everything was controlled by the state which is the maybe ultimate outcome of, of that sort of worldview and the result when um, those economies were finally freed so to speak um, was pretty much chaos and a lot of people were very helpless and still are and it's very tragic to see the scenes you see of, uh, you know, elderly babushkas selling fruit on the street corner because they've never had to really deal with a lot of those life decisions. I'm not to say the government here is going to tell you where to live, but ultimately, if you push the paradigm, you get to that point. So you have to always guard against losing the freedoms that allow you to fend for yourself. what's great about America is here is a country where the individual is the architect of his or her own destiny. Uh, in most countries in the world, your destiny is to some degree given to you. Uh, your decisions in life, uh, what to become, uh, what to believe, um, where to live, who to love, who to marry. Uh, in other countries, these decisions are made by parents or by the society. Uh, you have choice, but the choice is within confined parameters. I, th I think here in America, by contrast, the individual is in the driver's seat of his own life. Uh, and that's a very exhilarating idea, and it's the reason why America is so appealing, uh, especially to young people all over the world. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we are joined on the line from Sweden by our Euro correspondent, Paul Lambert. Did you hear all that, Paul? Yeah, I did actually, and that was very interesting. The, the first up was Paul McKeever on that panel as well. I thought I recognized Yes, that was his voice, yes. Yeah, I had actually taken the discussion a, a bit farther uh, based on what everyone was saying. And this is part of trying to think outside the box if you want to live free. You have to understand governments are made up of people, they don't have any sort of special powers just because they come together and they put this label government on them. They're, they're prone to the same faults and failings as everyone else. And so if you wouldn't trust some random stranger with vital decisions to your life, there's no more reason you should trust other strangers who have guns as well, calling themselves government to do the very same thing. Of course. Yes. Uh, I, was gl I was glad for once to hear a panel like that to touch upon that idea. Yeah, I, I thought it was unusual, too, and I thought the closing comments on that panel w was very interesting. Now, the last clip you heard just before we came came back on air was actually from the movie, believe it or not, Michael Moore Hates America, about destiny versus choice. That uh, was an East Indian immigrant speaking on camera about the difference between basically America and other parts of the world. Would you say a lot of what he said applies to Europe as well? Yeah, it applies absolutely. And it always comes down to one thing, and it always comes down to the money, who's paying well, that's interesting, because speaking about money, I got it here, here again. This, this article really caught my attention, and I don't know what to make of it. You know my frustrations with The Economist, eh, Robert? You, yeah. you consider it basically a, um, a rather hateful socialist left-wing <laughs> <No>. <laughs> magazine. I'm not quite that extreme, but yes. <laughs> and um, I think they do a lot of harm in terms of the terminology they use. I don't like when they use the word capitalism so freely and in the wrong context. And on July 24th, <clears throat> Europe's dark secret. They might not like to admit it, but Europeans don't mind a bit of capitalism, says the headline. And then they write, not all Europeans demonize, demonize sorry, the market. 
ex-communist Europe, which only recently threw off the command economy, is less hostile. So are the Germans with their small business mittelstand and consensual labor relations. Now, I didn't know Germany even had consensual labor relations. Is that the case? They don't, the unions there aren't forced or they don't have legislation? Oh, no. That, that's important to point out. In Germany and Sweden as well, union membership is voluntary and closed shops are actually forbidden. That's, uh, that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. <laughs> Considering well, the rand formula here it, in Canada. Yeah, well, that happened because exactly because unions were taking more and more political stands, not really associated oh, with any interest of the workers. And so they can't say, oh, we represent so many thousand workers when the workers had no choice whether to join or not. So, Which is it, exactly what has been happening here. And isn't that interesting that they took that? Maybe that might be one of the biggest reasons Germany is the powerhouse of Europe. Who knows? Oh, it's been like it's been that way for Germany. Uh, well, I think since just after the war, anyway, that it's quite famous in Europe for not allowing closed shops and for union membership to be voluntary. And in the past thirty years, it's been that way in Scandinavian countries as well. Amazing. But the article continues. It says elsewhere, though, market aversion seems to go deeper than mere disapproval of ex- uh, extravagant stock options or bonuses, which is also common to market-friendly Britain and America. Fully 29% of Spaniards and Italians and 43% of the French told a global poll last October that free market capitalism was, quote, fatally flawed. Only 13% of Americans shared that view. Nowhere is the contempt for free enterprise and its linked evils of wealth and profits more intense than in France. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Nicolas Sarkozy has declared laissez-faire capitalism, quote, unquote, finished. Almost alone in Europe, France imposes a yearly, quote, fortune tax, end quote, on most biggish assets, biggish, biggish, you know, <laughs> in literature and philosophy. From Moliere to, and Balzac to Sartre, the French have denounced the corrupting power of money and ridicule the grasping nouveau riche. Today's bosses, always cigar-chomping, are subject to satire, scorn, and even, quote, boss-napping. Communists... Trotskyites and the new anti-capitalist party are treated not as curiosities but as serious talk show guests, which means to me that Europeans see capitalism as the problem. What not, means to me, I don't uh, think Europeans have one iota of what capitalism not really a clue. means. Exactly, exactly. And yet, the, and yet, the Economist can write an article like this. What they're really saying is that people need freedom and capitalism to survive, and everybody's working on an underground economy and doing this and doing that. Not that they embrace capitalism, because that's that has to be done from the top. But it's interesting what the what their speculation here is. Why is France such an outlier? It could be Catholic guilt or lingering Marxism. Perhaps, however, it is time to let the French, as well as other corners of the market-averse Europe, in on a dark secret. The truth is that theirs is a capitalist society. And I just sit there and I <laughs> shake my head. Uh, for a while, Europe's leaders rail... Oh, no, so, for a while, Europe's leaders rail against profits and wealth. Its firms stride into new markets and rack up giant profits. Isn't that amazing? That's... It just, you know, the thing about the economist, I mean, the actual writing style is very good, but it it doesn't help the, doesn't help raise the level of the debate to the discussion. I read the economist myself, and, and I, it, you I'm know, constantly shaking my head. I know what you mean, and, and I don't I don't know that the writing style is that good. You have to get to about the fifth paragraph before you get to the, the main point oh, of any article. 
But they do make a lot of interesting observations, and this one's interesting. The reason that all this matters, they say, is that France is supplying so many of the new ideas for the European Union, and these tend to drag the whole EU project disproportionately to the left. When France calls for quote-unquote economic government, they mean imposing costly social rules on all. At best, too much meddling in markets will condemn Europe to a gentle decline. At worst, it will undermine the capitalist enterprises on which its prosperity and social model depend, they conclude. And just for another little dig, they stick this in at the end, and this is for you, Robert, because we were talking about conservative principles and conservatives, etc. Mm-hmm. And this is, it says, it writes, A few years ago, an ambitious center-right French politician seemed to agree. Quote, for 25 years, France has never stopped discouraging initiative and punishing success, he said. Preventing the most dynamic from getting rich has, by consequence, impoverished all the others, end quote. His name? Nicolas Sarkozy. (laughs) There you go, eh? So I think, uh, you know, what scares me about this is that I think European notions of capitalism in particular are becoming more and more the notions of capitalism to North Americans. We start thinking about it that way. And I think for Europeans, liberty is more a state privilege, not an individual right. And that whatever freedoms or, you know, kind of exist from time to time depends upon the will of the majority, meaning the government and politicians, not any natural right being enacted through the government. And I guess doing the right thing is a death sentence for politicians under majority rule politics, wouldn't it be? Well, you have to understand also that the idea of, of rights is, is understood very differently here. It, it is, I mean, socialism is a materialistic philosophy. So people over here, they talk about a right to an education, a right to housing, a, a right to food, a right to water, a right to recreational. There's even debates now in newspapers, a right to a uh, holiday abroad that, uh, you know, it's, it's grave injustice. So not everyone can afford to take a trip to Mallorca every single year. And so it's... That, that's, that's where we're at, and no one asks, I mean, how can you have a right to something that someone else must necessarily provide? Well, I don't think it's a question that was even asked, and I think that's part of the problem in Europe. Europe didn't have the history that North America did, although we're part and parcel of the same history, but they had a different past and different conditions in their development of the society they have today. Well, then, yes, I mean, of course, the, the pioneers who landed on the shores of Canada and the United States weren't expecting OHIP cards and... Uh, public schools just be there when they landed <laughs> you know there's that old saying you know once the public gets its hands on the, on the on the government's money you're in trouble because i think the public only rewards profligate state spending through the voting system that's what they really reward and that's why we hear all our politicians basically saying who can spend the most and that's the only visible symbol they can give us if they care about something you know like if you care about medicine you better spend more because otherwise well, like, nobody like will see it yeah, it was like I said at the beginning, and freedom is more difficult. Capitalism might be about making money, and socialism is about taking money, which is harder. Yeah, well, you, but the irony is you need the one for the other, don't it's you? It's always easier to destroy than it is to create. Exactly, but that's, now you're getting abstract, and people don't want to think of it that way. So, I mean, it's, it's such a monumental task if you're going to change people's minds, when it's better just to try to sort of go to the side or do things a different way so that uh, you can live free anyway. Well, I don't know that we've left many people with too many uh, answers to what we can do for Europe, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, thanks for joining us again today, Paul, and we'll, have to, we'll see you again on a future show. Anytime. And Thank uh, thanks very much for joining us, and Robert and I will now be turning our eyes to our own situation here and see how 
how much um, we are becoming, I guess, a lot like Europe and how much we take government for granted. And with that in mind, coming up here is another outtake from that same old beta tape with a bad hiss on it that I dug up a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the census. And this originally aired in 1981 on CHCH-TV. This is once again um, unparty founding chairperson Mary Lou Gutcher, which of course was the party that preceded Freedom Party. On um, the Doug Hall show aired out of Channel 11 in, um, in Hamilton. Hamilton yeah. And uh, almost 30 years ago, it's clear that the invisible state has been an environment uh, that we've kind of accommodated ourselves to for a long time. And here's that clip, and when we come back on the other side, Robert, I guess you're going to give us a little lesson about what? How well, we I hope to free your mind. Well, okay, let's see what happens. We'll be back after this. But uh, you know what, what's interesting? A lot of people don't think about this. We have not only cradle-to-grave government, but we have dawn-to-dusk government. When you wake up in the morning, you take a shower with water supplied by the government, you turn on lights with hydro supplied by the government, you have your breakfast and you look at the cereal package and there are the ingredients listed by the insistence of the government, even though you don't know what they are. In French it's and English. written in French and English because the government says so, which, by the way, keeps a lot of products off the market. You go to, to uh, send your kids off to school in a government bus to a government-run school where they teach them what the government wants them to learn. You go to work and you have taxes deducted at the source. Your employer's been made into a, an income tax collector by law. You come home and you stop at the local store, which is related with business licenses and, and tax to the hilt. You buy milk that's governed by a marketing board that the government runs. You come home and you turn on the television set and what you see is regulated by the CRTC. If you go to a movie, you see a film that's been screened by a censorship Hi. board. I mean, I, I just want you to yeah. know oh, I, that I, they are involved in parts of the sure, sure, they're involved in everything, practically, that we do from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? 
that you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And that's a little clip from one of my favorite movies, The Matrix. And in The Matrix, and in other movies like The Matrix, Bob, we have um, Harrison Bergeron, uh, Logan's Run, Fahrenheit 451, THX 1138. Remember that old George Lucas film? And what these dystopian societies depicted in these movies all go about, the characters all go about their lives happily, unawares of an underlying level of control and regulation, manipulation and evil. And we might look on Europeans and wonder why, as we were just discussing, why they don't either see or do something about the level of state intrusion in their lives. But we would be fooling ourselves if we believed for one minute that we here living in Canada live in a free society while everyone else in the world was being manipulated, controlled and regulated by the nanny state. Uh, now, Bob, Bob, you, Paul Lambert, myself, may feel the presence of Big Brother, our sort of little matrix, all the time. I see government everywhere. <laughs> once, you, once you train yourself to see it, you do, you know. I, 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 I have to tell you, I went through life politically blind until I was close to 30. Like, literally, politically blind. I, I voted. I, thought, I, I sort of woke up around my early 20s yeah. when I first got my first paycheck and wondered... What is this education oh, tax? Yeah, no, no, that kind of thing I, I was getting aware of earlier, of course. But I mean, politi- when I say politically aware, I mean in, in a sense of how I understand the problem today and my first inklings of where, where it originated and how, how it came to being. And that, that, I think, is the issue, is what I mean when I say I became aware of it. And when you say that most people aren't aware of these things, then wouldn't you think most of them would say, well, so what? If I'm not aware of it, it can't be bothering me. <laughs> I think that's actually the case, that, that they just go yeah. around blissfully unawares. I mean, we, you and I, are, feel the presence of it all the time because you, Paul, I uh, make it our business to be conscious of Big Brother. We study it, and we make it our mission to help others see it. Uh, we're like the Morpheus in The Matrix, freeing people's minds. Now, just go back to that clip with Mary Lou Goodcher. Mm-hmm. Um, she called it dust to dawn government, but I don't like using the term government to describe what is basically a misuse of government. Mary Lou is an anarchist oh, and yeah. sees all government as evil. Bob, you, Mr. You know, Paul Lambert, and I do not. Mm-hmm. We've, we've said on many occasions on previous shows that a proper government is a necessary condition for freedom. The term I like to use to call the improper use of government is the state. Others might call it Big Brother, interchangeable. Mm-hmm. In effect, yet, yet you would agree with her examples of being inappropriate. Not all the examples. For example, the use of water. I mean, there's nothing wrong with people getting together in a municipality and having a, a single source for water. It just makes not only uh, it makes uh, logistic sense. That kind of a thing. I can see that, but what if somebody wanted to compete? You're going to say you wouldn't let them? Well, what are they supposed to do? Dig up the roads and put their own lines on these? I don't know how they would do it. They'd have to have a means of doing it, obviously. I find that that's necessarily a a picky um, instance of uh, misuse of government. But no matter. Mm -hmm. What what I'm just trying to describe is the state is the invisible fist to Adam Smith's invisible hand. Canada long ago lost any claim to be a free society. We know that. If it ever existed as one at all. 
And I'm going to try and illustrate my point by telling a little short story, more like a diary than a story, of a man going about his life from dust to lawn in this city, blissfully unconscious of the state. I'll call him John. John awakens to his radio at 5 a.m. He hears the news come on right on time at the top of the hour. As dictated by the CRTC, all news talk radio stations must play the news at the top of the hour. If he tuned in the radio onto a music station, he probably would have heard Joni Mitchell's Big Yellow Taxi, which is the <laughs> perennial standard CanCon filler. The channel that John wakes up to is the state-owned CBC. It's state-owned and state-operated. John switches on the light and he thinks that he's got about an hour to get ready for work before the new time-of-use electricity rate hike kicks in at 7 a.m. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> you see, John is a lot like the rest of us, and he can't really afford the electricity at peak times and uh, must adjust his habits accordingly. He sits on the edge of his bed and scratches his bed bug, bikes, bed bug bites. John is a clean fellow, but for some reason, there's an, a recent infestation of bed bugs in this province. It's just a coincidence, I guess, that it occurs just after the province banned the very pesticides that kept them in check. He takes a colder shower than normal. As Are you sure you're making this up? I'm making this up as I go along. <laughs> I don't know. I've read about some of these things in the newspapers lately. <laughs> Actually, I think all, all of this is pretty much true. He takes a colder shower than normal as the gas monopoly has just raised their rates as well. John sits down to a breakfast of eggs, overpriced due to the egg marketing board, toast, overpriced due to the wheat marketing board, and a glass of milk, overpriced due to the milk marketing board, not yet satisfied, he has some cereal and reads from the cereal box as he eats. He has to flip over the mandatory French labeling, designed not so much to appease 1970s FLQ terrorists, but to act as a barrier to trade from the English-speaking United States. He amuses himself trying to figure out the list of ingredients mandated on the side of the box. As usual, he has no idea what they mean. John finishes his breakfast and puts the dishes in the dishwasher, and since it's now almost 7 a.m., and the hydro rates are about to rise, he programs his dishwasher to come on at 1 p.m. when the rates go down again. The programmable dishwasher cost him $500, but he figures he'll break even on his investment on the electricity he'll save sometime in the year 2050. <laughs> John turns on the lights and off the lights and locks up. Before he gets into his car, subsidized by his taxes, that is the manufacturer of the car, he waves to his neighbor who's just bustling her kids into her car to take them to the state-run school. John doesn't have any kids, but he's only vaguely aware that he's paying for his neighbor's children's education through his taxes. John is perfectly healthy, but is happy to pay for his neighbor's medical bills as well. On the way out of his driveway, he glances on his front lawn full of weeds. He once took pride in the state of his property, but since the banning of perfectly safe herbicides, his lawn has become an eyesore. The only thing that softens the blow to his pride is the fact that every other lawn in the neighborhood is weed-infested, too. John is a clerk for the largest single employer in the country, the Canadian state. He gets to work and makes a point of exchanging pleasantries with every co-worker he sees. You see, he has been told that recent changes to the Ontario Health and Safety Act make it an offense to ignore people he works with. It might offend them, you see. He says no more than hello, however, for fear of saying anything that might offend someone. He certainly doesn't want to be brought up before the provincial or federal human rights tribunals like so many others. At work, John is blissfully unaware that Tax Freedom Day passed a few weeks ago. From now until January, he can work for his own benefit and not his neighbors. But John doesn't like to think of it like that. He prefers to think of his work from 8 until noon 
is for his neighbor, and from noon till four is for himself all year round. It's less depressing that way. After work, John takes a trip to the local mall and pick up a few items. He walks through the stores and muses to himself that there doesn't seem to be the variety that he saw in a similar-sized mall in Port Huron, just across the U.S. border. He doesn't realize that it might have to do with the mandatory French labeling or that the labeling must have metric measurements and not imperial measurements, the measurements of our largest trading partner, by the way. No, he doesn't dwell on that. He just picks out the items and pays his bill. He does gripe, however, over the 13% HST just introduced on his purchases. Wouldn't be so bad, he thinks, if they would only lower the rest of the taxes he's forced to pay. John gets back home at 5 p.m., but must wait until 8 before, the cook, before cooking his supper. The hydro waits again, you see. While waiting, he turns on the television. He has long forgotten how mad he was at having to pay over $100 a month to the cable monopoly to get the few good channels he likes to watch. Most of that money goes to subsidize the state's channel, the CBC, and the myriad of other specialty channels for those special groups in society who need the funding since nobody watches their channels anyway. After supper, John does the laundry and programs his dryer to come on at one in the morning when the hydro rates are cheapest. Luckily, he lives by himself and only has one load of laundry. He wonders how others with large families must cope with several loads of laundry and how they could possibly stay up so late at night to do it. He falls asleep unaware of just how much of a slave he really is. Ignorance is often bliss. Now, I tell you this story, Bob, hopefully to think, to get you and everybody else thinking, actually, not you, because I know that you know all about this, but everybody else thinking about the effect of an overbearing state making decisions which affect our daily behavior, which diminish our standard of living and which impoverish us. As Morpheus in The Matrix says no one can be told what the matrix is you have to see it for yourself well no one can really be told what the level of intrusive government is you have to experience it for yourself now remember the state is everywhere around you even now in this very room you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television you can feel it when you go to work when you pay your taxes it is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth that we are all slaves, slaves to each other. So I hope that's a reminder to people to look out that's, there and think. That's a wonderful story, Robert. That was just excellent, and you've depressed me entirely. Well, my job <laughs> is done. <laughs> I'll tell you, that must have been Johnny Canuck, eh? That was his name. <laughs> Your character, John, that you made up there. Johnny Canuck. Yeah, Johnny Canuck, yeah. Canuck. <laughs> Canuck. Uh, and, uh, but that was, that was just well told, Robert. Um, I, I think there's probably been a few movies done on that theme in with a very futuristic to, way. With apologies yeah. to Mary Lou Goodchurn. I think well, Merrick Emery actually wrote a story similar to that, except he extended it and did a, a mirror piece where he actually described the same character getting yes. up in a totally free society. Yes, and his character was taken off on the 1984 theme, Winston, and he, did, yes. he wrote two, two themes of it. Uh, wonderful, wonderful story. I loved how you told that, and I think it sort of put a great ender on the show. And that's it for today, folks. I guess we've got to roll out of here because next week we've got to get ready for another show. So until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here next week. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be one thing about English-speaking people, we're the most arrogant people in the world. And the reason why is because we think we run the world. And we do. 
but we're so arrogant that we change the names of other people's countries for no reason whatsoever. There's a country in Europe, very beautiful country with a beautiful name called Espana. I've been there, it's gorgeous. It's called Espana, but we don't call them that. We gave them a name. What do we call them? Spain. Spain. What the hell is that about? That's not their name. Who went over and said, hey, what's your name? Espana? That's a horrible name. That doesn't rhyme with anything. How are you going to have a song for your country? All you got is, I'm Tanya from Espana. Then you're out of luck now. For now on, you're Spain. Plain, Maine, Rain. I got a whole musical I'm working out for you. We don't have one of those squiggly things on our typewriter. You're Spain, for now on. You don't change their name. My name's Eddie, you call me Timmy, I'm gonna kick your ass. We change their name.